This is The Guardian. Dieser Podcast basiert auf einem respektvollen Umgang miteinander. Leider geht es im Netz oft ganz anders zu. Bis zu 5% der Menschen verbreiten online Hass. Lasst uns dagegen gemeinsam lauter sein. Wenn Liebe laut ist, hat Hass keine Chance. Werde Teil der Initiative gegen Hass im Netz der Deutschen Telekom und ihren Partnern. Auf telekom.com slash gegen Hass im Netz. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Ten games or so left of the Premier League season and we'll take a good look at this weekend's fixtures. If nothing else, to remind you who's where and who's fighting for what. Manchester City, eight points off Arsenal, have Liverpool at home in the early game. The Reds in the scramble for the Champions League with Newcastle and Manchester United who play each other. And Spurs, whose director of football just got banned from, well, football. So perhaps he could direct things, movies, traffic or something. Don't write off Brighton, people say, while simultaneously writing off Brighton. And then at the bottom, it's still pick three from nine, some big six-pointers down there. Also today, Nick Ames has been back to Qatar to see if they've kept all their promises for migrant workers. You probably don't need a spoiler alert to guess. In the Women's Champions League, a wonder strike helps Arsenal into the semi-finals as Barca cruise through. We'll do that, plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. on the panel today. Uh, Nick Ames, welcome. Hello. And uh, uh, back from Qatar, and we'll get to that in part two. Hello, Lucy Ward. Hi, Max. And uh, football's uh, most financially sensible. Uh, <laughs> 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 uh, morning, Max. Nader Manuha, uh, welcome. Morning, Max, morning. <laughs> uh, E.T. Warrior says, do you have to preface every part of the pod with moronic questions from Twitter users? So, do you know what's actually quite a fair point? It's a fair criticism, but yes, and we'll carry on doing so. Uh, let's start with the top of the league. Arsenal uh, have 69 points from 28 games. Manchester City, 61 from 27. Uh, in the race for the top four, Manchester United are on 50 from 26. Spurs, 49 from 28. Newcastle, 47 from 26. Uh, Liverpool, 42 from 26. And Brighton, 42 from 25. Uh, Man City, Liverpool's the early kickoff. Um, and it feels, Nadem, like City have to win every game now to me. I think that does definitely feel like the case. And crazily enough, they could do that and still lose the title. I think that's where we're at now in this important stretch of the season. And that's going to be the bar for them. And if they are to win it, they're requiring, obviously, to beat Arsenal themselves, but then a favour elsewhere. But for the pace that Arsenal are going at, I think they're going to have on their points per game at the minute, I think they're set to finish on like 94, 95 points, which is really an exceptional season. So I think for them, as I say, they have to win these games and it's going to be tough for them, especially with the FA Cup game they've got coming up, potentially another four or five Champions League games if all goes their way. But they've done this before. They've done this year in, year out and they know that it's going to be a tough challenge. But I'm sure they'll be more than up for it and that rivalry against Liverpool. It feels weird that it's not like a, a title-defining one for both sides this weekend, but then in the same breath, it's still City versus Liverpool. I'm sure Liverpool would enjoy taking a potential title charge away from City and City the same, taking Liverpool potential out of the Champions League race. So should be a great game. Looking forward to it. Not really. It's a very stressful game. Don't enjoy it. But I'm sure for a neutral, it should make for a fantastic encounter. Do you have inside info about Haaland? I mean, he missed Norway's games. Do we expect him to presume he's completely 100% fit? That's, that's what my gut is telling me. Yeah. 
inside info. You think I get inside info? Like I'll, I'll semi work for the club, but they don't tell me anything. So yeah, I have no idea, Max. The biggest thing for me was like, I wasn't going to put him into my fantasy right. football team. That's when I really care the most. But overall, I don't have a clue. I'm the same as you, unless someone wants to tell me otherwise. How do you see this going, Lucy? Uh, well, I'm doing this game, actually. So as a neutral, and that's what I'll be on Saturday. Really interested. But like Nim said, it's... It's interesting that it's not a right at the top one. And, and Liverpool, they're so funny, not funny, ha-ha, but, you know, they're so inconsistent. They produce great results. They, they sort of blend in that new front three and it's actually working quite well, not quite at the level of the old front three. But, um, you know, they are getting to that point and they're reaching it, but not consistently. And I think that's that's it. So I don't think that Liverpool will want to have the Thursday, Sundays next season so I think that you know that sort of the next few games will, will define this season for Liverpool and obviously next season as well it's interesting that this is the early kick you never know is it good to get the you know to go early or go late just because because City is so far behind or it feels so far behind Nick is it good that they're playing before Arsenal because because you think if Arsenal went what 11 points clear then you start thinking well this is obviously ridiculous even though that is just time right that is a ridiculous thing to actually think no, you you can spin it either way. I I think this is is a massive and potentially decisive weekend in the title race. I mean, if, if City and Arsenal both win, it's not. But I think you just never know at the moment which Liverpool are going to turn up precisely, do you? And if if they bring it and get a point at City, even then Arsenal go into that game against Leeds, which is probably the last game for them of a run of very, very winnable games that have largely been at home against relegation contenders. If they go into that thinking we can go 10 points or, yeah, even 11 points clear, I I would back Arsenal to, to, um, to win that game and do it. And by which point you would think, OK, City game in hand, City's still got to play Arsenal at home. But by which point I would say, frankly, it's over. I would say it is all but done. So the pressure on City to win that first game today is, I think, huge. I, I think they're, I think they're very used to all these permutations. Frankly, we've seen what serial winners they are in, in the last few years. I, I don't think players of City's caliber are going to worry too much about um, about the timing. But I do think we've got a fundamentally important weekend ahead. And yeah, there's pressure on Arsenal too because if you look at their fixtures after this, they've got. Liverpool away, haven't they? Then they got West West Ham away, who can always raise it in a big game. Saints at home, who are fighting for their lives, and then City and Chelsea in consecutive games. So I I kind of think as well that Arsenal could do with not stumbling here, and I don't think they will. Um, all of which is again a, a long way of saying, blimey, anything could happen. But I think potentially potentially we're looking at at a, at a decisive day if City don't do the business. I think. For me, it doesn't necessarily feel like wholly decisive, but I think it's a very significant week. And I think after this international break, the March one, everything is just so much more sort of like perilous because it's that point where you're running out of time. And every team that we'll mention, they're playing for something. You know, there's not that game against a side who have just all gone on holiday because every game matters. And even Liverpool, so they're playing City this week and then Arsenal next week, as we say, that Arsenal game being at, um, at Anfield. Like they're in six at the moment. They ca- can they afford to lose two games, and then you know have the games that they have left to try and potentially finish in fourth? Probably not. So you then realise that they've got a big say in terms of this title race as well in this next seven days or so, and it makes for a, it makes for a really compelling viewing between now and the end of the season. But 
I think I think I've said this on the podcast before. Like, if you're a fan of a team that's going for something either to win a league or to stay up, there's no fun at all until games are over. And then even then, it's like a sense of relief because you've just about managed to get over the line. Whereas if it was September, October time, you could probably enjoy those days out just a little bit more. What you say about every game matters is actually interesting because normally you get to the last five games and you say, oh, they're playing mid-table fodder, they're playing a team that's on the beach or something. But because everyone in mid-table is basically in quite severe danger of going down this year because it's so compacted, there aren't going to be too many games as things stand that are dead rubbers, are they? Someone's going to be fighting for something. I heard somebody say yesterday that it, it's the biggest set of fixtures ever in the Premier League this weekend. Oh, because right, that's good. Apart from, <laughs> apart from Chelsea versus Villa, which is, which is sort of not really that much. Oh, well, obviously Chelsea fans will think different. But every single other game is to their fans like, wow, we've got to, we've got to win. So every single team's going into the, if we don't win, then this will happen. And, you know, I sort of look at that, um, Arsenal Leeds game. That's not an ideal game for Arsenal because Leeds bring chaos. So you can't really plan um, for not not quite as bad under um, Grazia, but they still bring chaos to a game. And I, and I, and I think that um, that's probably not an ideal game for Arsenal, even at home. I think what's interesting is, you know, Nadem saying, look, if you are invested in this, if you have a team in any of these fights, that none of these games are enjoyable. And it's it's basically more than a quarter of the season. So sort of like one, like one in like a fourth of all of the thing you actually pay to go to watch or you pay to watch on TV <laughs> is like decisively not enjoyable. And yet we're all totally engaged yeah. in this. I think what's interesting with Arsenal, Madam, is just watching Arsenal, you just think, well, they'll slip up at some point. And it's got to the stage now where I just don't think, I just virtually no part of me thinks they'll slip up in a game like this. I'll be honest, throughout the season, I've not been that person that's thought that they would slip up, essentially, because I've just looked at the way they've played. And it's been exceptional. And as a consequence, those performances have brought results. If they were just getting results and not playing well, then it's more of a red flag, in my opinion, because you can see further down the road that they'd struggle. But they've sort of passed so many real significant tests to the point where you're thinking, well, yeah, this is this is who they are. Like, the way that they'll play between now and the end of the season, Obviously, you never know, but I wouldn't be surprised if they won every game. That wouldn't be the craziest thing I've ever seen. It's because they have a consistent style of play. Obviously, now they're not in the FA Cup. They're not in any of the Cups. It's the league, the focus. They've got 10 games left. And I think if ever there was a moment to narrow your focus, it'd be coming out of an international break, knowing you've got 10 games to win a Premier League title. That couldn't you know, get you more set. That's exciting, especially with the style of play that they have, where they can control games. They've got some grit in there as well. And obviously, it won't be easy, but they're more than capable. I said at the start of the show, like their points per game would put them in the mid 90 point range. That's an astonishing season. Yeah. What's the craziest thing you have ever seen? In football wise? No, no, just general. Just something that crazy. I was once, I was on the ninth hole at Kingsway Golf Course in Melbourne with my friends Matt and JK. And one of them hit a golf ball into a tree. And as the ball went into the tree, a pigeon emerged and the ball disappeared. And I'm not, I'm not a conspiracy yeah. theorist, but he definitely turned a golf ball into a pigeon. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, if you're talking golf references, one of my friends, shout out to Paul Roberts. Hello, he Paul had Roberts. a tee shot and, he's, and he swings it like 120 mile an hour and he hit the ball. It landed a yard in front of him and then spun back over his head and went back one nice. yard. So that's maybe the craziest golf okay. thing that I've seen. Yeah, how about that? It's not as good as turning a ball into a pigeon, but it's okay. Sorry, Lucy, you wanted to actually make a point about football. 
Yeah, I, I'm, <laughs> Arsenal, disappointing Europa League loss, but I am the most disappointed because I was on a European road trip with Arsenal uh. and would have followed them as far as they could possibly go. So I was devastated when they lost against Sporting because I think the next round they got, they've got they got Juventus. So that would have been a two-legger there. So, yeah, so personally speaking and selfishly speaking, that's that that's not good. Won't someone think of the co-coms? Um, on Sunday, Newcastle United versus Manchester United. It's a big game in the battle for Champions League football. Newcastle won their last two. They got that late penalty against Forest. Feels like we sort of roped them off after their last dip and perhaps a bit too early. Meanwhile, Nick, Manchester United are without Casemiro. Like a few weeks ago, we were talking about them as potentially in the title race. And, you know, they're not guaranteed top four. So this game is absolutely fascinating. Yeah, it's huge. And um, you look at it and you um, you think United could probably be okay with a draw to, to fend Newcastle off, keep them at arm's length a bit. I think it's, are they three points behind? I think they are. Um, but, you know, Newcastle, we, I know they've stuttered a bit recently until the last two games, but they've only lost three games all season. They're really, really hard to beat. Very, very tough. Often seem to pluck a win from nowhere, much as they did at first, although I think they, they, they deserved that, didn't they? Because they really came on strong in, in the second half, as far as I remember. I think, um, yeah, massive game, massive opportunity. And I think St James's Park is going to be up for this as well. Really, really pumped. Um, they'll be giving it everything. I think United will be very, Manchester United, not Newcastle United, will be very happy to get away from there with a draw. And maybe in, in, in the long run, that'll be enough for them. But yeah, huge game. And, you know, Newcastle, I'm sure, will just be delighted to be in, in this position in the first place because they might not have expected to be at the start of the season. Nedim, you said before you never sort of really thought Arsenal would slip up. Newcastle, I presume, you know, it's obviously a, it's a different level, right? They're just not, you know, but I actually think that those two wins. I really thought they would tail away more quickly, actually, and have proved me wrong with a bit of resilience. I think people have been looking at them thinking, well, their goal scoring is one of the issues why they've drawn, I think it's the second most games in the league this year with 11. But then there's a resilience resilience that is there because in those three defeats, that's the same as Arsenal who are top of the league. So there's clearly something about them and it's just that ability to convert, I think, in one point into three. But then they've found something, they've got that bit of confidence back, scoring those goals. And again, the focus is going to be there. Like this has been a great season for them so far. And they're not a million miles away from being making it even better. Like they've got two games in hand on Spurs ahead of them. And they're, they're a good side. Like Spurs have just literally let go of their manager. So it's not like they're in the best position ever. And the chase is on. So maybe you thought, well, if Liverpool apply the pressure, but then Liverpool go and lose to Bournemouth. So it almost feels like they'll feel it's in their hands to be able to achieve something this season. And fair play to them to be in this position to be able to do it. And yeah, some people will probably not fancy them to sort of see it through, but that's only because history suggests due to, well, sorry, recent history suggests that they're not actually supposed to be good. So why would you assume that they're going to know how to manage this situation? But there's confidence in there. They're overall in good health. And they've got St. James's Park, who I'm sure, you know, when things are going well, that's still one of the toughest places to go in the Premier League. So I think they might just sneak forth. And I don't think some people are going to like that. They've got a bit of, um, of an X factor now as well in um, Isak being being back and fully fit and in form. And obviously he's been up and down with fitness and stuff. Um, and maybe if there was a, a bit of an argument over them, certainly mid-season, maybe maybe, that, maybe they didn't have someone who could give that bit of magic, that little flicker from nowhere. I know Almiron was maybe doing it early, earlier in the season. But um, Isak at the moment, he's such a great player to watch. He, he's kind of leggy, but he glides. And he's he's got this incredible way of kind of, 
nicking the ball around an opponent, an opponent at the last minute, and his finishing is so so cool as well. And his his goal, I think it was first, wasn't it? it? Was was so incredibly taken. And I think having someone like that coming into fitness and sharpness at the business end of a season just gives you something that you've not had before. And I think that will be important for them because I don't want to say they've been predictable at times. That would be harsh, but they've certainly, yeah, maybe maybe been a bit blunt in, in those doors that Nevin was talking about. So I think having him back is a an interesting addition. Rashford was training this week after his scandalous uh, holiday to New York. Shame on him. Um, and, and no Casemiro, Lucy, which is really important. McTominay could come in and, you know, confidence... Confidence makes such a difference for a footballer, doesn't it? And he has had just like an unbelievable week. Yeah, I mean, you talk about confidence for everything, really. You know, you, you talk about Newcastle and, and their and their confidence and the self belief of, of Arsenal. It, it it goes a long way. It's probably one of the most important things at this time of the season. But McTominay has had his detractors, and even from his own fans, has it has his detractors. But he is a a good pro, and I, I, and he's a sort. I mean, I've, I've done quite a bit of work with the young kids at Man United and, and he just keeps them all in check. Even as a senior pro now, he's still he's sort of wandering around making sure people behave. So in terms of his attitude towards stuff, and I'm pleased for him actually because he does get a little bit of stick and, and obviously going into this weekend and, and he'll have to be the main man in, in uh, central midfield. I think that, uh, you know, he'll be thinking that uh, he's a will-beater at the moment. Monday night, Spurs, who are fourth, every time we mention Spurs, they are still fourth somehow, like Palace being 12th. How? Stuck there, no one knows how. Um, Mike says, can I take Paratici's worldwide football ban in his place if it means I don't have to watch Spurs play for the next 30 months? Yeah, Spurs are urgently seeking clarification from FIFA. Further clarification after their managing director of football, Fabio Paratici, had his ban in Italy extended worldwide. He'll have to step away from his job after FIFA said it extended a ban. Um, when Juventus were found guilty of false accounting. Juve have denied wrongdoing. They and Paratici have appealed. Uh, it's just more chaos at Spurs now. The day before, like he was doing an interview on the club website saying that we're all focused, we're all ready. You know, we believe in uh, Stellini and Mason to get us fourth place. And now he isn't allowed to do any. I mean, I don't know. what Does he does he get under house arrest when the games happen? What happened? Like, like... But it is just—it's been so chaotic these last couple of weeks for Tottenham, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And I don't know. It's this such the, honestly. I've got to be completely honest to the listeners here. Spurs for me are like the weirdest team to cover because I, I, it's like on a week-to-week basis, you know, trying to get a feel for where they're going. Like, oh, that was a fantastic win. I think they can do it. So oh, that was a really bad loss. Looks like everything's in complete disarray. And most of the teams aren't really like that. You know what I mean? Like, you tend teams to get a general idea of what they're like, but. Again, like you said, they're still in fourth. They're, st- they're still in fourth. So it's not like it's the worst season ever, yet still at times. It feel like, feels like it has been that. And it's just, I don't know. <laughs> I'm Mr. Max. I, I want to try, no, I wanna try no, and give you, you something here. And I generally need to please send this to someone else. I have no idea what to say about them because it's just, it's just, it's a lot. And I'm sure for the Spurs fans, they're trying to figure it out themselves. And unfortunately, they, they've got no say. I wonder, Nick, do you, I was sort of thinking this, that if, if, Southampton don't get that penalty in the 94th minute, which wasn't a stone wall penalty. It was, you could see why it was given, but it might not be given. Or James Ward perhaps misses it or Forster saves it or whatever. Is it, is Conte still there? Like it seems, it sort of seems weird that these tiny moments happen. Like we all thought Conte would go, but I just, he couldn't really have done that presser if Tottenham had scratched a win, could he? 
No, probably not. I, I mean, you never know um, with Antonio Conte because I think he is so practiced in deciding what his message is um, for the media and he knows how um, how, um, how to play it. And he, he definitely thinks very carefully beforehand before he goes in professor about how he's going to do it. Maybe it was a pre-prepared message that he had anyway. But yeah, I agree. We might be in a different place, albeit with the writing on the wall. Um, I, I just wonder whether they would have sat, well, whether they departed part of company with him if they had known that this Paratici situation was in the post, because it's it's clearly caught them by surprise. Otherwise, I, I, I think Conti would still be there. They're, they're completely rudderless. They've now got, you're now looking at Ryan Mason, who, okay, is excellent and has, you know, fronted up for stuff before. And Christian Stellini, who's had, very minimal exposure as a front man at this level. He's, you know, obviously stepped in two or three times. He's given given a few presses. He's fairly good with the media, speaks good English, that kind of thing. I think the players do do like him. But essentially, there's no senior figure there now who can play an, um, an active and direct role and no one really to to sit up and explain things. It's a bizarre, bizarre, bizarre situation. Um, I... I fail to see how how they could have been caught by surprise with this Paratici business either. I totally fail to see it. Um, and then on a, on on a footballing front, I mean something something that that tells me it it had broken down so badly that he'd probably be gone anyway is the fact that they put Stellini in because surely you wouldn't put Conti's man in if um to replace him immediately if you know if you had something better lined up. And they're obviously waiting for Nagelsmann for the summer. But Cellini has worked alongside Conte for years and years and years. He's had like one year managing, I think, Alessandria in Italy, maybe Genoa's youth team. Do we think that in his 48 years, he's had this alternative vision of football <laughs> bubbling away that, that's, that's bursting to get out and he's going to wow us with it? Maybe, maybe. Maybe, um, maybe he's just been happy being with number two, but I, I fail to see it. I don't see how things are going to be any different on, on the pitch. So I assume they were so bad off the pitch that they and Conti just had to get it done quickly. But now they're in a mess. It's an absolute state there. And so a bit like Nedham, I, I can't really analyse it wonderfully except to say it's an absolute bin fire. Lucy, can you, you know, can you, can you get through the, the, the rubbish? Uh, you know, I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, um, I look at it a little bit different because quite a lot of the work, the majority of my career, it was working with sort of people, young young kids in academies and in professional clubs. And and to me, and I've tweeted it, um, Conte is really struggling with the grief of losing people, I think. I think that he's lost people close to him and he's then looked at his life and thought, what am I doing? I'm not, you know, my family probably not with me. Um, I've lost people close to me. What am I doing? He's got enough money. You know, is he looking at life different? And I think that's probably one of the reasons why the Lestalini in charge, that it probably was more to do with him as a person. Um, and I actually have a little bit of sympathy for him because I just think that he sort of unraveled in public view when, when sort of everybody's throwing the football thing at him, obviously, and quite rightly. But he's in a completely different place um, to, to deal with it. That's that's how I see it, and I can imagine what it has been like on the training ground for everybody, but 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 in particular him. Only fair to include Brighton in this top four chat, Nadem, and possibly Brentford. I mean, that would be a stretch, wouldn't it? But they play each other at the Amex in a game that still feels League One to me. 
but it's actually, <laughs> you know, and probably to anyone else who like grew up in the 80s and 90s, but it's a, it's a kind of Europa League playoff game, this, isn't it? Like for these two sides. Yeah, it certainly feels that way. And we were talking before about, say, this final stretch now. And it's, it's interesting because you look at Arsenal, they've got 10 games left, but Brighton have literally got 13 games left. That's, that feels like a lot. You know, usually I feel like we're in a position where everyone's kind of around the same amount of games. Well, that three is very significant. And when you look at them in seventh, they've, it, we, everyone can see them there, but not everyone's like thinking, I'll tell you what, they're part of this race just because Liverpool directly above them feel like they're just beaming out. But Brighton have essentially, you know, had the had the better season as such. So it it's good. Bright, I didn't, I'll be honest. I didn't think Brentford were going to be doing this. I'll be honest. And given that I have my QPR links, I was hoping this wasn't going to be the case, but they're actually very good. They're very, very good. And it's um, it's a good example for, say, some other teams who may be trying to come up and do things in a particular way. But they're a good side. You know, they, they've they lost, sorry, they've drawn 12 games, which is only, well, I think that's the most in the league behind, uh, just ahead of Newcastle. So, Bright- uh, so Brentford are a tough team to play against. Brighton, obviously, a very good side. And it's interesting when you lose your manager that you thought was key, but you still crack on anyway. I think something needs to be said about how well the players and the recruitment and stuff like that has gone. And hopefully for them, they don't send any more staff or players to Chelsea so they can continue their rise. But yeah, fair play. Like I didn't think Brighton versus Brentford would be seventh versus eighth in the Premier League in April, but they've done it and they very much deserve to be there. So good luck to them in this final part of the season. It's a little bit like Geek City, Brighton, Brentford, because they've got both got an owner who obviously know they can't match the resources of, of the people, the, the clubs around them. So they had to, instead of outspending, they had to outthink. And they're both data-driven in terms of the recruitment. And they've both crunched all the numbers and come out with completely different styles of play, and both of them work. And so for, for all the geeks and, and tactical people out there, I think that it's a it's a proper geeky game, that, because you mm. sort of... Is that you then, Lizzie? <laughs> That's me. And you, I reckon, as well. <laughs> yeah, and me, yeah. It's true, it's true, it's true. <laughs> why doesn't, why isn't there a geek, or maybe there is, like maybe Man City and Liverpool are like geeky, absolute the top, but why isn't someone with lots of money also crunching the numbers and being data-driven and doing all those things? Or are they doing that, but also they can spend 100 million so you don't look at it in the same way? That's exactly it. They've got the money, haven't they? And they've got the, the the crunch of the numbers, but I just think these two are, 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 are so clever. But it's mad how they've put everything into the the special computer, and and each each have come out with a completely different way of playing. Yeah, for sure. And I think with cities and other teams, say for example, like they're probably in for Jude Bellingham. You don't necessarily need to crunch the numbers to just see that he's probably <laughs> going to work for your team. But when you so that's the thing, as Lucy said, when you when you have the money it's quite clear to identify who you want and what you need as opposed to having like a big pool of people say lower down in that pyramid and trying to figure out which is the sort of diamond in the rough whereas Judy's kind of like the obvious yeah. diamond in world football you're right you can't be the guy in the white coat and glasses who walks into Pep Guardiola's office and says here Jude Bellingham and expect him to be like okay yeah you're you're, you're worth the money aren't you? anyway look, that'll do for part one uh, part two we'll do the relegation dogfight Plural, dog fights. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So the bottom of the Premier League, all the teams that could go down, starts at Crystal Palace in 12th, who have been 12th forever. They're level on points with Wolves. They both played 28. They have 27 points. Leeds, 
And Everton are on 26 points. Everton have played 28, leads 27. Forest and Leicester are on 26 and 25 points. They both played 27. West Ham have a game in hand on them on 24. They're in the bottom three, if you're still following this. Bournemouth on the same points as West Ham have played a game more. And Southampton bottom have played a game more than Bournemouth and are on 23 points. We've mentioned Everton playing Spurs on Monday. We'll obviously cover that on Wednesday's pod. Simon says, Palace, Leicester, Forest, Wolves, West Ham, Southampton, all this weekend. Could we see a record set for the use of the term six-pointer within 48 hours this weekend? P.S. My name really is Simon, uh, referring to yesterday's pod. Uh, should we start with West Ham, Southampton, Nick? 18th v 20th. I mean, it's just an enormous game, isn't it? Because those, even though it's so tight, if you're in one of those bottom three pieces and you lose, that daylight might start to emerge after this weekend. Yeah, completely. It's been so, so compacted and you'd have to expect it to, to space out at some point. Um, West Ham, I, I just keep assuming every week that they're going to start pulling things out, out of a bag and do something, but it's just not happening. I think last time out against Villa, it was a fairly inauspicious one-all draw at home, wasn't it? All a little bit flat, um, as I remember. Obviously, they came into that off the back of an absolute thrashing at Brighton. Um, and you kind of think, where's the form going to come from? Like Moyes has obviously tried to tried at times in the season to integrate a few more attacking players and be a bit more expansive. It hasn't quite worked. Then at times he's gone, gone the other way and I think irritated the squad a bit by sit, sitting so deep and being so conservative as, as they were in losing at Spurs in a game that I covered a, a few a few weeks ago, for example. It seems to me like he's at that point that's dangerous for a manager where he's trying a lot of different things and none of them are really working. Um, so the results have to come there. And again, on paper, you think they should beat Saints at home. Um, but Saints are improving in, in in recent weeks. They're starting to get a bit of an uptick. Um, obviously, they'll, I mean, I know it was a couple of weeks ago, but maybe get some momentum from, from that comeback against Spurs and a bit of belief, which I think was important for them to, to come back in that game. And it's, it's, I mean, it's a tough one. I, I think West Ham have played a couple of fewer games than one or two people around there, haven't they? But if they fail to win, I think they've got a massive problem because you just can't see how anything is coming off for David Moyes at the moment, whatever he tries. Yeah, and Lucy, I saw that at some report, and it might be nonsense, I don't know, saying that Moyes and his backroom staff are slightly fearful if they don't get a result, that, that he might get the boot. And it, but you're thinking, if you're West Ham's owners and you've just had an international break, if you did want to part company, do it two weeks ago. Yeah, I, I, I feel a little bit for, for Moyes because like, because they really completely overachieved and I, I followed them in the, the Europa League last year. They were absolutely brilliant and they you know they, they got a bit of momentum, which raised ex- expectation and then now everybody's so disappointed. I mean, they are obviously underperforming, but they're 18th in the league, but they've got the seventh best defensive record. So they've got a better defensive record than Spurs, no surprise to you, Max, and Manchester United. Right. So they don't give up that many chances. And I think that there's just something like Nick says that just needs to click somewhere along the line. But, you know, Southampton, I think a little bit more comfortable now that they're playing the way that they that, that they played under under Ralph. I think that that's what the suits what that young squad, you know, and have a little bit of belief about the since the, the games before the international break. But, yeah, if you were going to sack Moyes, you're not going to wait. Surely not, but nothing surprises me in football, I have to say. Nadam, did Roy Hodgson getting the Palace job surprise you? Um, no, no, I don't think so. No, no, just, okay. just be, it's, 
Well, it's a different question. You're saying I'm surprised that Patrick Vieira was sacked or that Roy Hodgson got the job after he was sacked. Which question are you asking me? My question is, are you surprised? When Vieira went, I must admit, when I first saw Roy Hodgson, I was like, give over. I mean, they're playing Leicester, Palace are 12th, Leicester 17th, and like a win gives them breathing space. But I was I was definitely surprised when surprised. Surprised? It seems like the way of saying it. Surprised. That is trying to get, just try and get Roy into every word now for the rest of the pod, but... I was surprised that Roy got that job, man. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't surprised as such just because of the nature of, say, the last few games that they're going to have. So I didn't think it was going to be something that was long-term that would come at a point where they're essentially thinking that they're free-falling. I was a bit disappointed to see uh, Patrick Vieira go because, you know, a lot's been said about the last 10 games they had versus the next 10 games that they have. And it seems like the next 10 games are more sort of like season-defining than the ones before against a lot of very, very good sides in good form. But I think from when he lost his job, they probably wanted someone who's going to come in and just not necessarily like have a huge bounce and just be thinking about the future, but something that's just going to stabilize them. When you think about the stabilizers, like that's in the past where you'd be hearing about Sam Allardyce's and all those types of people. So I think with Roy himself, somebody who's been at the club before for a prolonged period of time, yes, they made, they made a fundamental change when they let him go have a couple of years ago. But in the same breath, you need someone that can come in, hit the ground running with some players who were there before and just try and find a little uptick in form. So that didn't surprise me that much. But like I say, it was a shame that Patrick lost his job. And that surprised me in terms of, say, what was lying ahead for them. But it's the powers that be. This is the way they make the decisions. The weird thing is, I, I remember covering Roy's last game um, for Palace. I, I think it was Arsenal in um, coming out towards the end of the lockdown. I think I've just got it here. It was... May 2021 at home at Selhurst and I, I think the crowd was the stadium was maybe about a third full because of COVID but he went on the pitch afterwards and gave this really emotional leaving speech and I remember going going in on it in my match report because it, it was really quite moving and touching and you thought oh and now he's now he's back again it's, it's a bit like when you hug goodbye to your mate when you're going on the tube <laughs> and then you're going, going the same way you know um it's this it's quite bizarre to see him back there again. I, I, I wonder what, what his next farewell will be and um, how good a farewell it will be if they go down. I think there was a, a few rumours about the the, the, the the coaching quality and I think for Parrish, it probably better the devil you know. He knows what he's going to get on the, the, the coaching field because obviously, like Ned said, it's not about, you know, the, the, the results that they got were based on, you know, playing against teams that, that were ultimately better than them. And so he then give him a run. But there was obviously something else going on in the background. Um, and I think that, that he knows what he's going to get coaching-wise on the training ground, Paris. So I, I think that's... I wasn't particularly surprised. However, the need to score goals, defending wasn't the problem. And obviously that's what, what um, Roy Hodgson's quite good at. The defending, mm. I mean. Leicester... Yeah, I know. Leicester are too good to go down, aren't they? I'm sure. <laughs> oh, my goodness gracious me. This is the type of thing that gets <laughs> picked up, isn't it, at the end of the season if they go down? Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, feel, it feels like they're too good. It feels like they're, you know, they're good side. They play some good football, but then they've lost four of the last five games. Like, there's nothing. There's, no, there's nothing going on there. And, like, I'm looking at the league table and I, t I try and look at things like goal difference because I think to myself, well, that's probably going to be worth an extra point. The same way we talk about it at the top is the same way you can view it at the bottom. And their goal difference is minus nine, but they're still 17th. That's really, that's really, really peculiar. And yeah, the fact they've scored 38 goals is great, but then they've lost the second most amount of games this season in the league. I can't, 
I can't figure it out. Like Leicester and West Ham, I'm seeing them down there. I'm thinking, I'm sure they'll they'll be okay. They'll get out of it and so on and so forth. But still, here here they are. They, there's clearly something that's gone wrong that season because as well, West West Ham have a minus ten goal difference, so it's not horrendous. But Leicester City, I don't get it. I'm, Max, I'll be honest. I'm being really open, honest today. I don't get it. Like, why are they there? Why are they there? I don't get it. I tell you, I mean, we're, we're going to Forest Wolves is the sixteenth, the thirteenth, and I. I don't expect, I, I have literally no clue. There was actually no way of having any idea what might happen in, in this game. I don't know if anyone has any sort of salient thoughts. You say Forest versus Wolves? Yeah. Is that Forest? Yeah. It's probably, I'm going to pencil that one in for a draw. Okay. There, that's, that's, the, that's the way I see that one. But I, oh, I, There's a grimace from Nick Ames at the bottom of the Zoom call. Well, yeah, um, for the same reason. I've, I think first maybe have just tailed off a bit recently, haven't they? And um, the home form's been very good, but there was definitely warning signs in that Newcastle game. And that, as, as for Wolves, I, I mean, goodness knows. Like, I watch them sometimes and I think, wow, Lopetegui's come in and he's got them playing with real style, structure and a plan. Like, I, I, I covered the win over, over Liverpool and that was genuinely impressive, really impressive, like, from front to back. And I thought, these guys are not going down, no chance. He's he's worked quite a miracle here in, in terms of how he's managed to get those relationships and patterns going. Um, and since then, it's been absolute chaos. I think, what was the last game? 2-4 against Leeds or, or their last home game anyway. Um so yeah, no clue at all. But but that um, that is what makes the back end of this particular season so wonderful because every game just has this sword hanging over it. Uh, Bournemouth Fulham feels like a nice game. I mean, Mitrovic won't be there. He said on a personal level, I regret my actions that led me to being sent off. I allowed my frustration to get the better of me. How I reacted was wrong. I was trying to get the referee's attention, but I appreciate I should not have put my hands on him. I understand why he showed me a red card. My first in-game sending off for Fulham. So presumably he's been sent off when he wasn't in, <laughs> in the game. My first since the 2015-16 season. So he's like showing the evidence that he shouldn't get a big ban. I've accepted the three-match ban for my red card, as in, please don't give me any more. I've spoken to Chris Kavanagh to apologise. I've volunteered to accept a club fine. I want to put this incident behind me and get back to having my teammates on the pitch as soon as possible. We await to see how much more that he is banned. So, uh, yeah, I, I mean, like Bournemouth desperately need the points. Fulham chasing Europe uh, again. Like you said, Lucy, another game where something is riding on it. And the only game where nothing is up for grabs is Chelsea Villa, boring mid-table, no need to talk about it. I'm moving us on because, Nick, I want to talk about your trip to Qatar and I want to talk to Lucy about the, the Women's Champions League. Nick, let's talk first. You just got back from Qatar. You went there for a week to do what we all said we'd do and no one has done, which is to check in and see how things are after the World Cup has finished and we've all buggered off. Yeah, it was quite a shock being back in an empty Doha. I was more used to being woken up with coffee from Jacob Steinberg or walking downstairs and getting a hug from Jamie Jackson in in, in the atrium. So this time I was all by myself. Um, yeah, we wanted to go out. It was 100 days since the final and we thought it would be a very good idea to come, to come back and see see how things were going with the, the legacy in Versicomers. So myself and also colleague, Pete Patterson, who has done absolute world-leading reporting for years and years and years on the workers and migrant rights situation from there. We both went out there and sort of collaborated on some stuff and did some separate stuff as well. You can't expect in three months everything to be totally, totally different or a finger to have been clicked. You cannot, and you have to be fair and understand that. You can't come back and say, now why isn't this place utopia? Because change takes years. What you can do is look at 
in implementation and the speed of change and the way that things appear to be going. So that's what we were doing here. Um, I mean, the, the work we've done on, on, on workers and migrants is very accessible on the website, so do have a read. Um, what we broadly found was that, yeah, okay, the, the, the labour reforms that have been well, well publicised, you know, are, are being enforced um, to an extent, but still there's a lot of people and a lot of situations and a lot of things falling down the cracks, and it's definitely not happening as quickly as I think you would like. There's a lot of workers who are still in very precarious situations, some of them definitely being being underpaid. And there's a massive issue, I think, which is something that could be looked at now um, and could have been looked at straight away and much sooner about compensation. Um, whether that's for for families who um, for, um, for families of someone who has died at work, maybe in connection with a World Cup on a World Cup site, um, or compensation for the many many workers who have had to, to pay illegal fees to bad acting agents to come out and work in Qatar. That can be thousands of pounds. It's really really shocking. I've met a security guard at, at a stadium. I won't say which. Who um. He's on a two-year contract and he'll spend most of that contract working off the loan that he paid to come out to Qatar. And there's currently no formal mechanism for that to be remedied at all. There's a lot been happening on paper, but a lot that's not quite happening where it should be in practice. And I think we've tried to reflect that. And, and I think you have to keep the pressure on as well. You have to keep shining a light because, you know, the world does move on. The football gaze moves on to the next tournament and to the next controversy into the next thing that we need to shine a light on. Um, so I was glad that we went out there and did the work. Also visited a lot of the, all apart from one actually, of the World Cup stadiums. And I wrote a piece on that yesterday because I think that's interesting too. And they've got a big and very impressive legacy plan for the stadiums. All of these are massive venues. We enjoy watching games in them, most of us I think, in, in person. And a small state like Qatar, cannot sustain all of these huge, huge huge venues so the plan for definitely five or six of them is to scale them back halve them in size in some cases give the seating to developing countries or places that need it stadium 974 the colorful one with the crates that had a lot of publicity during the tournament is to be taken down altogether um now i didn't turn up and think why haven't they done all this in three months because that would be unfair and absolutely ludicrous but i turned up and there was nothing happening and people who, who I spoke to, some were quite surprised when I, um, when I said, is there capacity coming down from this stadium or that stadium? And nobody on the ground would give me a, a timeline as to when this stuff would happen. And on a very basic level, you would think, haven't they thought this through? Now, Qatar is holding the Asia Cup early next year. It's maybe, I think, in a bid for an Olympics. Perhaps they'll bid for one of the new Club World Cups. So there might be stuff happening there down the line every few years. But I think we need to know how they're going to fulfil some of their legacy plans. And we haven't really had that information yet. Um, but yeah, many strands, the, the workers and human rights situation, obviously by far the most important. And I think the answer is that there's a lot of stuff that isn't being implemented as quickly or as sharply as it should be. Did you did you find or speak to any migrant workers who gave the impression that 
while the World Cup was on, they were treated differently. And now everyone's gone. They've kind of been forgotten. Because that would that is kind of... And that, this wouldn't be the first tournament where that has happened, of course. Um, but I just wonder if that is a, a vibe you sensed from, from migrant workers. I definitely felt that... I definitely met, well, I met plenty of migrant workers who felt that Qatar and its authorities have been quite um, assiduous in in try, trying to look after them during the World Cup, and now they don't get that level of attention, put it that way. Like, I, I met a guy who works at um, a very nice resort area in the north of the city, and he said, you know, we had police coming past during the World Cup checking that we were doing our, our working hours and that we weren't working well, sorry, working more than eight hours and that everything was by the book and they come by and they come by several times a day and be very concerned. And then the moment the moment the tournament stops, the employer is basically allowed to allowed to do what they want and there's the police aren't coming and checking and there's no enforcement. Now as it happens, this guy's employer was pretty much behaving itself post World Cup. But I also heard heard of several that weren't. Um, and there's a lot of people still in in quite desperate situations. Just read what the Qatari government told the Guardian um, uh, uh, regarding recruitment fees, as you mentioned in that story. That guy who's paying off, you know, what he spent over these two years. He says uh, they said it's illegal for companies in Qatar to charge recruitment fees. Workers should not arrive in Qatar with recruitment debt under any circumstances. In 2022, it shut down 45 recruitment agencies for not complying with the law. Although that is thought to be the tip of the iceberg where offenders are concerned. Responding on the wider topic of remunerating exploited workers, the government said we have a strong track record of providing compensation when workers have been wronged and the mechanisms in place have already benefited hundreds of thousands of workers in Qatar and their families. It added that over $350 million, that's £285 million, from Qatar's workers' support and insurance fund has been paid to workers in compensation since it was established in 2018. And while you were out there, Nick, you also found a, a positive story, didn't you? Yes, while I was out there, I found a positive story. Um, I visited a team called Mazrua FC. Now, this is a team of workers, um, all, all of them African, all of them in their sort of early, early some mid-20s. And they're in, I mean, frankly, most of them live in a pretty bleak and barren part of Doha. Um, they're playing and training on, on a really rocky dusty, hard surface to the best of their ability. But, but they formed just over, over a year ago. And the idea was that this one guy, Robert, he was, he was such an impressive guy, such a wonderful, convincing orator, just thought, okay, A, we need something for these guys to do in their limited downtime that, that gives that fulfillment and meaning and physical activity, which, you know, physical activity helps mental activity and vice versa. And also he realised that he was in, in this big accommodation block of workers and there's some genuine football talent there. Some of these guys had actually come to Qatar okay to work, but with an eye on using it to, to develop a football career. So he founded FC Mazura. They, as I say, playing and training, playing some friendlies in, in pretty unforgiving circumstances. And they're hoping to build and build and build and get better facilities and better training gear hopefully join the Qatar Community League, which is the best amateur league in the country, but they can't currently afford the fee because it's been put up. I'm, I know they're interested in looking for any sponsorship that might help them to, to, to push on like that. And yeah, really fantastic, honest, hardworking bunch of guys who, who welcomed us along to tell their story so with so much heart and warmth. And, you know, some of them maybe um, would have a chance of making it in football, 
others it's more from a diversion of playing the game and having love and joy through it and they're also looking at hopefully becoming sustainable enough to be able to put money back into the communities they came through came from in africa some of them came from very difficult backgrounds so um hopefully they've got a bright future uh look it's great reporting all of that stuff's on the guardian sport website uh, which is a really good website i've just retweeted that last uh story you spoke about as well uh thanks for that nick and that'll be for part two part three uh we'll do any other business and before that uh the women's champions league Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Um, so we Arsenal beat Bayern 2-0, uh, 2-1 on aggregate. Uh, Lucy, you were on COCOM's duty. I mean, it was 2-0. It could have been so much more, wasn't it? They they were so dominant in this game. Yeah, they were. But I mean, really, to set the scene, they'd, they'd gone to Bayern. Bayern Munich, uh, you know, one of the strongest teams in Germany, got international players, got Georgia Stanways, who was a, a, a lioness also playing for them. So last week's first leg, Bayern were 1-0 up. So... It was difficult for Arsenal because Bayern are a good team. They can counter-attack, but they set off the game really well, really high intensity, you know, scored two brilliant goals, particularly the first one strike from Frieder Marnham, just on the edge of the area, and then a, a header from Blackstenius. But they just kept the pressure on. They probably could have scored three or four before half-time. Uh, the goalkeeper grows for, for, for Bayern was, was brilliant. But it was at the Emirates. The crowd got behind them. Um, I think it was a record crowd for a, a Women's Champions League game, you know, for, for Arsenal. So it, it was brilliant. And they held on at the end. It got a little bit wobbly towards the end. And, um, you know, I was frightened that it was going to be extra time, obviously for Arsenal, but also for me, because I was dying to go to the toilet. And you can't get a chance <laughs> to do that at the end of end of games. But yeah, all joking aside. So interesting. So interesting you make that point. Like When you're working on a game, like I'm, I was doing um, what was the the Arsenal champion Europa League game, right? I'm in Sydney. I've got to fly back to Melbourne, and I'm I have not factored in extra time and penalties. And I'm there going, this post match is going to be the shortest. We're a streaming service, right? So we're not like you've got to do it to this time. We're just like this is going to be the shortest post match you have ever seen because I've got to get out of there. And even worse when you're covering cricket because cricket goes on forever. And so you're just like, oh, this is just, just please rattle through them. I can't be here all day. And I, you should have really noticed that when you took the contract that it was going to last all day. Anyway, more importantly, the game, that opening goal, Lucy, was like an arrow, wasn't it? I mean, it was absolutely. I mean, the setup was nice. It was nice interplay, but the strike is just perfect. I mean, Manham is a good player because obviously Arsenal have lost Vivian Miedemar, who scores a lot of goals, and Beth Mead. Manham has just moved up the pitch slightly, but she is some player. And she's sort of relished being in that that number ten slot, and and just no back lift. The keeper couldn't set herself, and I don't think anybody would have two goalkeepers wouldn't have saved it. Um, so that started the game off really well for Arsenal. Obviously, they got the second really quickly, but you know they will play either Wolfsburg, the German team, or PSG, but, uh, who play tonight, and Wolfsburg are winning one um, 0 after the the first leg. And Arsenal, you would say. At this stage, obviously, both halves of the draw are, are, will be difficult. But the other side of the draw is Barcelona and then Chelsea uh, against Lyon tonight. And they're winning 1-0 and they're playing at Stamford Bridge. So that Chelsea's side of the draw is a little bit harder simply because it's got Barcelona in it. I saw some good quotes from Jonas and Idavaro afterwards saying, you know, we're, um, we're seeing history being made in front of our very eyes here. It's almost becoming like like the Emirates is Arsenal women's home you know, um, with the crowd and the interest and, and just watching it, you know, absolutely mushroom this season. Is that how it, how it feels to you being there? 
Yeah, it does. I mean, obviously, Arsenal have won the Champions League before when it was called the UEFA Cup, but in, I think it was 2007, they did absolutely brilliantly. Um, but sometimes playing at the, the, the men's stadium, sometimes is a, a decent, I know I watched, I did Roma Barcelona last, last week. Roma for the first time played at the men's stadium. And for them, it was an away game. They were, you know, they weren't playing at home. So sometimes you've got to get those few games in to actually make it feel like. So for, for Arsenal women, they've played there a few times. So the Emirates does feel like home. They do feel like they've got a little bit of pressure there. And to be to be honest, the crowd were really engaged. Quite a lot of the time, women's football, you know, it's that that you know, the, the, there's quite a lot of kids there, and that you know, they're sort of staring into the sky or they're looking at something else. But they were really engaged with what was going on, and I think that helped the team as well. Well, uh, obviously, Guardian Women's Football Weekly is the place for all women's football. Uh, they do. Uh, the job brilliantly and we recommend you listen to that a um, bit of any other business before we go Tommy uh, got in touch to say the Scottish Football Association get a bad enough rap as it is without contributors being ignorant of the way UEFA sold the TV rights for Euro qualifiers hope today's panel are better informed don't stress anybody I can do this uh, yet yeah, UEFA sell the rights for internationals on behalf of all their 55 member nations so we apologise to the Scottish Football Association please don't sue us uh, Peter says how many of today's panel have a comedian in bed waiting for them after Barca Jim had uh, Justin Morehouse in, in a bed behind him after they both did a gig together I can see Jethro waiting for Lucy oh, it's up to you Lucy if you want to uh, <laughs> take that with you or not um, no not, not this week fair enough Tricky's been in touch, but presumably not that one. Uh, having just listened to yesterday's pod, I can now hear the Wizbit theme tune going around my head. Ha ha this away. Ha ha that away. Ha ha this away. My oh my. Thank you. Pleasure. And uh, Simon says, another Simon to add to the Football Weekly Totalizer. Uh, we met fleetingly when I directed you to the toilets in the pub after the Birmingham show last summer. That's got to be worth a mention. Surely, yes. Thank you, Simon. Had you not, I could still be looking for them now. And I'm not... So I appreciate it. Uh, and that'll do uh, for da- today's podcast. Um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Nadem. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you, Lucy. Cheers, Max. Cheers, Nick. Thank you, Max. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer, Christian Bennett, will be back on Monday. This is The Guardian. 